Some people love to dance, and other people are terrified of dancing. One thing is for certain it's a part of human life and it's not going anywhere. At Rediscover, we explore a uniquely human dance story each week. I mean, everything is kind of、uh, influenced by disco, influenced by punk, or influenced by hip hop.、Yeah. To be there at the birth of it and be playing records at that time was super exciting. Because why would you walk through life when you can dance it? I've been working on this episode for months because it's a big story. It's about the disco era. So I want you to come on a journey with me. I've been traveling around the country interviewing people who either live during the disco era or are obsessed with it and love disco music. In this first episode, I'm going to introduce you to myself, why I'm so passionate about the subject, and we're going to continue this story as time goes on. So let's get going. This week, your dancing king or queen is me, your host, Dance and Flo. My name is Florence, but I go by Flo, and I love to dance. Like today, I was in a cab dancing with my hand because I had to move something, and I didn't even realize I was doing it until the guy next to me started imitating me. It was a Sia song. What could I do? I remember commanding my first dance circle when I was only five years old at a middle school dance that I snuck into. My parents found me in the middle of a dance circle, killing it, I'm sure. And I was just hooked. It was one of those magical moments in my life where everything felt amazing and I felt connected to why I'm alive. Deep. I'm so deep. <laughs> Well, today I live in San Francisco, California, and I study media production, and I co-own an events company called Redisco. And the purpose of this show overall is to explore all things dance, but most of all, I want to tell you a good story. It's dance circle time! Each week, I'll feature a new story in the middle of the dance circle. Is disco dead? I think so, and a lot of my friends agree, and we're really concerned about it. That there was an unjust death to this music and to true soulful dance music, and it does have a place、uh, in the world. That's Eric. We started a group to bring disco back to life. It's called Redisco. What's so special about disco? You ask. Let me explain. With outrageous flamboyance, the gay liberation movement was coloring the fringes of mainstream society. What we were doing in the 70s, and I, trust me, I was there living the 70s. What we were doing, we were we were putting the philosophies and the idealism of the 60s into real life, and we were enjoying the hell out of the 1970s. Let me tell you. These are the voices of people who lived through the disco era, but the memory of this culture is still alive in Eric, who wasn't even born yet in the 1970s. 
you looked at the music and experiences bring together people from all sorts of socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds, uh, black, white, gay, straight, rich, poor, very much about the music and dancing, and also a huge period of innovation. You look at uh, the democratization of sound and sound systems and uh, DJ equipment. Here I was, I realized, throwing parties to quote, bring back disco, but where was I bringing it back from? Where had it gone? I decided to go to the source and investigate. The Big Apple. New York. After I landed, my cousin, Godfrey Cheshire, who makes documentaries in New York, connected me to the famous Jim Forat. Jim didn't just go to Studio 54, he was a manager at Studio 54. Since then, he's been recognized for his work promoting gay rights. He's even been interviewed on the Colbert Report. The only chance I had to interview him was at a nice restaurant over his lunch break. So, apologies for all the background noise. I'm Jim Forat, and it's very nice to be with you this morning. You know, let's go back in time to the early 70s for a moment. Where did Studio 54 come from? Mm -hmm. and, and my memory is that the very first discos were black gay clubs downtown Manhattan. Uh, the Loft was, was one of them. And Nicky Diciano, was a white Italian DJ, is the first person to mix on the beat, which meant that you never dropped, you know, you just went smoothly, smoothly, smoothly. Whereas Mancuso played records in their entirety, Ciano mixed them together with two turntables. The idea that you could have one turntable and just mix the next record was unbelievable. The records don't stop. So that was the first thing. That was the first big innovation. And that was the foundation of, of this idea of just DJs. It was called disco. And they were predominantly black gay men. Um, and then the white gay men would go, and then the straight people would go, because once again, the best dance music, the best it was going to be a gay club, you know? That's how I describe studio. If you got in, it was a safe environment to be who you are and have as much fun as you could possibly have in one evening. Because it was, it was permissible, it was safe. Jim introduced me to the idea that discos were predominantly a safe place for gay men who were just coming out in the early 70s to dance and express themselves which led to the first true mixing and DJing. Those venues were sanctuaries. My friend Eric from San Francisco, who I mentioned before, introduced me to DJ Bruce Easley of Brooklyn. Bruce is my age, but reiterated the importance of discos as safe havens back in the day. Oh, and that amazing music you're hearing? That's Bruce Easley. That's his recent re-disco, Disco Together mix. And at its essence, nightclubs were a refuge for people who otherwise have to adhere to some social norms that don't really support who they are. 
I'd always believed that there was this pure joy and love and excitement for the moment, a celebrational tone in disco music that I loved. I wanted to ask Jim, who was actually there at Studio 54 and the other original discos, if this was really what the culture and the feeling was at the time. I think of the word disco, I think of like happiness and positivity and celebration. Celebration is a perfect word. Yeah. Because when you, when a good DJ would build everything up to that peak moment, yeah. they'd take all the music out while the crowd was cheering and they're just so celebratory. It was a different time, though. Um, economically, it was a different time. Uh, yes, there were rich people, but people could afford to live in the city and work, you know, go to work, go home, sleep for four hours, get up, and then stay out all night. And um, it was before AIDS, before crack, uh, cocaine was around, but it was, a, you know, there's a certain innocence to the time. Yeah, that's what I thought, too, from a distance. And um, there's nothing. I've always I've always looked at my work in clubs as political. I'm a very political person, as, as sort of culturally political. Yeah. Because when you put people together on a dance floor that would never ever talk to each other, and maybe be frightened of each other. Yeah. If you mix the room properly, you have a mixture of diversity. It's, it's political. Yeah. I realized then that Jim Forat and I, though many years apart in age, shared an important belief: that dancing together can unify the most different people. It's, you know, the beat unifies everyone, you know? Yeah. And when people see everyone everyone getting down to the same yeah. beat, who maybe they're afraid of or, they're, or they don't like or they don't want to like, you know, <laughs> it, it, it makes a huge difference. And it's the same thing with, with gay, when I said it's a, it was basically a gay dance floor. Many straight men would never go to a club like that, right. but they would go to Studio 54 because it was hip and cool, and the and the girls were beautiful, or their mm-hmm. girlfriend wanted to be there, mm-hmm. and they didn't get hit upon. You know, the fear of being hit upon. You know, was like right. straight men think everything that the most desirable things in the world. <laughs> yeah, that whole the gay scene was the most progressive scene in clubs. I'm not gay, but I felt like very comfortable and very like welcomed and I just loved it. Meet Justin Strauss, a New York institution, has been called the remix king by Thump Magazine. He's been an important part of the music scene, the DJ scene since 1975. Jim was saying that like the gay clubs were like kind of the beginning of the really fun nightlife scene in the 70s? Always. I mean, you had Studio 54, which I thought was cool, till I was taken to the Paradise Garage, which was blew my mind and changed my whole way of thinking and DJing and what everything I thought about DJing was turned upside down that night, the first time I went to the Paradise Garage. It was a black gay membership club on Saturday nights. And I'd never been to anything like that at the time. Musically, the crowd, the clothes, the everything, the attitude was super open. Was why? Why then? Why? Because why were they just? They felt safe. I mean, it was a place for you know 
gay culture was not the same as it is now. It was very underground. People were scared because there was people were coming out right before AIDS, kind of, and there was just this immense freedom they felt inside. Nobody judged them. You know, it was it was beautiful. After speaking with people who lived through the disco era, like Justin Strauss and Jim Forat, it seemed to me that the, the earlier part of the disco era had been a beautiful, innocent celebration of love, freedom, and different people coming together. In 1977, with the release of Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, disco culture hit the mainstream in a big way. And there was eventually a backlash. On the evening of July 12, 1979, at Kaminsky Park in Chicago. A twinite doubleheader at Kaminsky Park, the White Sox versus the Tigers. Between games, 24-year-old Steve Dahl, a popular disc jockey for Chicago rock station Loop 98, would take the field at the head of his so-called anti-disco army. Radio host Steve Dahl organized a promotional event for the baseball games. He called it a disco demolition, where fans were admitted for a cheap price to the game if they brought a disco record to burn. After Dahl blew up the collection of records, thousands of fans stormed the field in support of the disco demolition. Rock station Loop 98 would take the field at the head of his so-called anti-disco army to blow up thousands of disco records. Every day I would play a disco record and drag the needle across it, you know, and scratch it and then blow it up. But I tapped into something. There's a, an undercurrent of hatred for disco. In a few minutes, we're going to attempt the world's largest disco demolition. So you were saying before that, when the disco demolition happened, mm -hmm. it was pretty overnight. Oh, it, I mean, it was almost immediate. I mean, the, the, the stories go that um, when Disco Sucks happened, a lot of, I mean, Sheik, for instance, now Rogers said that one week he was playing a bunch of shows, the next week they had no shows. You know, uh, disco clubs, clubs that played a lot of disco because, because of Studio 54, a lot of other clubs were like, we want to get in on the fad too. Um, but as fads go, when they end... All those clubs just started playing country western and, 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 and rock. So it So Bruce, tell me, why do you think the success of Disco Sucks mattered? Due to the success of Disco Sucks, which I think was just a publicity stunt that got out of hand and and but because of the fans of rock and roll music at the time it had some crazy racial overtones to it that I don't think the DJ was ever, um, I don't think he ever expected that to happen. But it really ended an era and ended a lot of venues that people really needed in their life. It ended an era that had music that really saved a lot of people's lives and gave people's lives meaning, or at least just gave them the escapism they needed at the end of the week so that they can face Monday with feeling a little better. Yeah. I also asked Justin why he thought the disco demolition happened. And his answer was more focused on the commercialization of disco. 
and I really loved it. And Studio 54 was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a great experience. And, you know, after a while, it got very commercial and the whole disco scene, there was, which is why there was a backlash of, to the disco scene because it became very, everyone was like making a disco record, you know, and it was, a lot of it was crap. But there's a lot of crap and every there's always good and bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people are like burning disco records and you know, the Mud Club was opened as a as a, an alternative to what was going on there to take things, you know, in a bit more punk, which was also happening. When I asked Jim this question, he got somber and he spoke about what he and his friends were going through when AIDS hit in the mid-late 1970s and how it affected discos and the mix you could put in a room, which he had said was what made the discos really magical. Almost everywhere where there was a a fabulous disco club, there was a fabulous disco gay crowd that went to that club. And when when death started knocking at the door and that fear and MTV and crack, all these things came at the same sort of time. People became afraid, you know, they became afraid uh, of getting it, you know, I mean, this is what they didn't know what it was. And that that had an impact on nightlife and the the kind of mix you could put into a life. And so many people died. The drugs changed, heroin and crack came back. I don't want to make it sound dark. I mean, I had clubs during this period that were very, very successful. But the, but the day of the big disc- Those days of those kinds of clubs are over, though. There were many factors playing into the success of the Disco Demolition and the Disco Sucks campaign. After hearing these accounts from Bruce, Jim, and Justin, it really sounded like disco was destroyed by AIDS, drugs, racism, and hate. So I was surprised to hear Bruce's response when I asked him, Is disco dead? No. Disco is not dead. Where is it living? All of my friends. All of the people that come to my parties. All of the venues and bookers and promoters and records on my wall, it's not as dead, no. Is disco dead? No. It's changed, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's not dead at all, it's actually, you know, there's a lot of disco and and all dance music, like the influences kind of in all dance music, a lot of dance music. Disco caught on in the mainstream after it had happened. Like, it was already a thing for a decade before John Travolta happened. And once it finally entered the mainstream, it had already moved on into house music. Like, that, it had already started. Because disco was just fast R&B, and that was going on in the black and Puerto Rican and gay clubs in New York and Chicago. Uh, and by the time it got to John Travolta, everybody who had started the movement had moved on. And the Disco Sucks thing happened, too, which was... 
a devastating blow for disco in pop culture. However, it only pushed it back underground and it went to Europe and it lives. I mean, you know, Frankie Knuckles, the late, great Frankie Knuckles, the inventor of house music out of Chicago. I once said to him, Frankie, house music sounds like disco to me. He says it is, but we can't call it that because of AIDS, because AIDS was very much connected to most of my peers got so, uh, you know, there's also the lifestyle, of a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, all those things could have had its impact on, on, on the body too, but I'd like to not dwell on that as much as how celebratory, um, I celebratory is the right word, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to qualify for anything else, the celebration of self, the celebration of spirit, the celebration of hope, and a goddamn celebration of the beat. Though the disco demolition may have been successful in the mainstream American culture, I've learned that disco never died. I was wrong. Actually, I now believe that disco is indestructible. Nothing touched Studio 54. Uh, there was almost, I've said this a couple of times, I'll say it's a perfect model, you know, of what you would want. In the next episode, you and I will take a trip back in time to visit Studio 54 during its golden years from many different perspectives because it's all about the mix in the room, right? You walk down and you would just hear, hear the pulsating music, and the closer you got, the you know, the more a scene it became. So join me next time to find out what exactly Zach found at the end of that hallway at Studio 54. Love and Disco from Dance and Flow 